For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. So we're going to be looking at this great story about hope in the midst of hardship, the life of Joseph. We're going to be reading a lot of narrative here. But I think there's a value to just reading through these Old Testament narratives, partly because some of us have probably never heard this story. Let's begin in Genesis 37, starting in verse 3. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. Joseph was 17 years old, probably at this time. And um, there's a number of things about Joseph that we should consider. You know, he was really the favorite among his brothers. This becomes clear as we read through the narrative. When his 10 other brothers walk through the door, their father, Jacob, was kind of hazy about the details of their lives. But whenever Joseph walked through the door, he was interested in his life, he knew his, all of his friends' names. Jacob probably knew all of his teachers. And he really took an interest in Joseph, in part because he was born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And so we see this pattern where, you know, favoritism was something that w- uh, went through really their whole family throughout the generations. Uh, We're also told one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. So to sort of signify his favoritism of Joseph, Jacob decides to buy him this really nice jacket. In other translations, for example, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says many colors or literally long sleeves. So I think it's probably that this was a multicolored robe or jacket. So to signify his favoritism, you know, he decides to go and buy Joseph this jacket from Nordstrom's. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, all of his other brothers got jackets from Kmart during the blue light special. <laughs> and, you know, even though Jacob was totally blind to his favoritism, I'm sure that Joseph's brothers could see this a mile away. I mean, many of us grew up in families where we had to live under this favoritism where our parents decided that they loved, you know, one of our brothers or sisters more than us. And so this created strife and tension within their family. We're told his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't even say a kind word to him. You know how things degenerate in a conflict to the point where you can't even speak a kind word to the person that you feel bitter toward. And to make matters worse, Joseph has a dream. And he decides as his brothers are all sitting around, hey guys, I had this amazing dream last night. You know, we were all out in the field gathering bundles of grain and my bundle of grain stood up and all of yours bowed down to my bundle of grain. (laughs) What do you guys think that means? Sometime later, he has another dream, and he tells his parents, he says, I had this crazy dream where the sun and the moon and ten stars bowed down to me. And Jacob and Rachel were indignant. that They, they said, so you think that we're going to worship you? And um, we're told that Jacob, though, decide, uh, remembered this because he uh, uh, sensed that it signified something. 
Well, anyway, when Joseph's brothers, sometime later, when they saw him coming as they were working out in the field, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. How do you think they recognized him at a distance? A multicolored robe, right? They, they could spot that thing a mile away. Well, they say to each other, here comes that dreamer. You know, when you envy somebody, when you hate somebody, you find different ways to dehumanize them. And that's exactly what they did here. You know, they couldn't even say his name. They had to call him the dreamer because they hated him so much. Come, they said, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, which is like, you know, where they would hold water underground. So it was basically a hole in the ground that they were going to throw him into. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And Reuben, one of the older brothers, steps up and says, we shouldn't do this. This is really bad. Instead, what we should do is we should, we should beat him, take his multicolored robe, and throw him into the cistern. Well, just then, as they were sitting down to eat, you know, uh, they're so callous that they can enjoy a meal as their brother lay there beaten in this cistern. You know, it's kind of like committing a murder and deciding that at the scene of the crime, you're going to sit down and have some lunch. Uh, we're told that some Ishmaelite travelers, a caravan, passed by. And so when the Ishmaelites came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and decided to sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. And so... You know, it's interesting that it says that they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Later in the book of Hosea, we know that Hosea the prophet actually had to go and purchase his wife, Gomer, back for 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces, or 30 pieces of silver. And so that was probably what the going rate was for a slave. And in this case, they decided to just, you know, wholesale him out and send him to these Ishmaelites for a cheaper price. And so they decided to take him to Egypt. And so they took his robe, dipped it in some goat's blood, and they sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? And so their father recognized it immediately. They said, he said, yes, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. So he was distraught over the loss of his beloved son, his favorite son. Now, there's a terrible irony in this story. You know, Jacob's dad had his own favorite son. Isaac, we're told, really loved the taste of wild game. And his eldest son, Esau, was a hunter, a sportsman. He liked to hunt. And, uh, you know, he was kind of a man's man. He was, he was hairy. Whereas we're told that Jacob, he was smooth skin. He looked like a Nivea lotion model. <laughs> you know, and he worked among the tents, unlike his brother Esau. And Jacob actually envied Esau because of the love that Isaac had for Esau. And he also envied his inheritance, and so he decided to steal his inheritance as well. 
And so it's very interesting that, you know, in a lot of ways, Jacob falls into the same pattern that his father Isaac did. You know, Jacob, we're told, uh, married two women, Rachel and Leah, and he favored his, other, his wife, uh, Rachel, over Leah. And it turns out Joseph was Rachel's son. That, that's the reason why Joseph was his favorite. And later, Benjamin, another son born to Rachel. Well, Joseph's brothers sold him to this Ishmaelite caravan passing by. And when they eventually get to Egypt, they decide to sell Joseph to this high-powered official, this guy named Potiphar, who happened to be the captain of the, the palace guard. Genesis 39, uh, Moses tells us the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. You know, it's in the midst of crisis that God enters into the narrative that the Lord was with Joseph. And we see this often really throughout this narrative that whenever there's a crisis, whenever Joseph faces yet another trial, God enters in at the worst times. Also, we're told that he succeeded in everything he did, that God prospered his hand. So even though Joseph was facing all of these different terrible circumstances, God was, was with him. He was behind Joseph and all he did. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And so this pleased Potiphar. So he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything that he owned. Well, from that day, Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property. The Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph, there, there he didn't have to worry about anything except what kind of food he had to eat. He's like, you know, I'm just going to worry about what's right in front of me, this bowl. You guys take care of everything else, okay? So this goes to show that Joseph was a very capable person. He was charismatic. He was super gifted. And we're also told that Joseph was a very handsome man, well-built. So he was hot, too. You know, he uh, was a good-looking guy, had a nice body. And uh, you could probably crack an egg on his jawline, too. <laughs> you know, really, when you look at Joseph, he'd come a long way from the empty cistern, and really the future looked bright. I mean, he gets sold into the house of Potiphar, and he, he has this meteoric rise where he essentially becomes the guy whom Potiphar trusts with everything. But we're told that Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. You know, Joseph would be walking around doing his duties and uh, Potiphar's wife would see him in the halls and be like, who's this little beefcake over here, you know? <laughs> and she says, come and sleep with me, she demanded. You know, so she's not taking the subtle approach. She's just like, come to bed with me now. You know, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. It must have been really tempting 
to take this proposition. You know, when you're a person who's used to succeeding, somebody who is used to gaining power and influence, it would have been easy to look at Potiphar's wife as just another conquest among his other successes. And I think it would have made total sense for him to justify, well, I have to do this because otherwise, if I refuse her, then this is going to jeopardize all that I've accomplished. So it would be very tempting to take advantage of this situation. But we're told that Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Notice that he sees that it's not only a betrayal against Potiphar, who's entrusted all of this stuff to him, but also he sees that this would also be a great betrayal against God. That it was actually God who was entrusting him with all of these responsibilities and that it was God who was responsible for his success. Well, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went out to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come and sleep with me. You know, she didn't have another pitch. It's just basically, come and lay with me. And Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. She called out to her, her servants, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave to, here to make fools of us. And so she goes and tells Potiphar her account of what happened, that Joseph was actually trying to rape her. And when Potiphar heard this, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. Now, I think the New Living Translation from which we're reading takes a little bit of license and sort of interprets this as Potiphar showing anger toward Joseph. But if you look at other translations, such as the New International Version, it says that he burned with anger. It's unclear what the object is. And so it actually might be that he knew that his wife was trying to seduce Joseph, but he had no other choice. What was he going to do? He's going to throw his wife under the bus for this Hebrew slave? And so maybe he was actually angry at his wife because she's the one who put him in this situation. Well, he took Joseph and threw him into prison. You know, again, can you imagine God prospering you, getting this new life in Egypt, thinking that you could file away that old chapter in your life where your brothers betrayed you and sold you as a slave, thinking that things would be different. And then here you are, thrown back into prison, again, unjustly. But again, in verse 21, we're told the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithfulness. You know, it was during the darkest and really most trying times that God shows up in the narrative. Again, Joseph is sitting there in this prison, probably wondering to himself, how could this happen again? And yet God reassured him of his faithful love. You know, many people who've gone through incredible suffering in our fellowship and who have decided to remain faithful 
in following Christ can often look back at those times of suffering as really the, the, the times of real closeness that they've experienced with God. Really unparalleled closeness. This must have been what Joseph felt during these times. Well, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite even among with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. And so, at some point in the narrative, Joseph actually meets Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker in prison. These guys, you know, look sad. And so Joseph decides, even though he's got his own problems, to set that aside and go and talk to these guys. And they're both like, you know, we had these really unusual dreams. And Joseph says, you know, I've got sort of a special talent of interpreting dreams. Why don't you tell me what they are? And so they explain their dream to Joseph. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, he says, of your dream, he says, in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and he's going to restore you back to your original place as cupbearer. And then the chief baker says, well, what about me and my, my dream? And he says, for you, in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head right off of your body and he's going to throw your dead corpse onto a pole. And the chief baker says, that's the last time I'm telling you about any one of my dreams. <laughs> Well, things happen exactly as Joseph says, but we're told that the cupbearer actually forgets about Joseph. And he ends up rotting in prison for several more years. Genesis 41. Two full years later. You know, imagine the kind of struggles Joseph must have wrestled through. Disappointment after disappointment. You know, he might have experienced some despair thinking, how am I ever going to get out of this situation? One of the most powerful men in Egypt is actually pinning me down. That's why I'm here. How am I ever going to get out of this? You know, he might have experienced unbelief. God, how could you put me in this situation? Why, why would you do this to me? Third, he might have experienced anger and bitterness. Is this some sort of sick joke? You know, the, the moment I'm, I'm starting to see some relief from my suffering and then you throw me back into this situation again? You're just dangling me along every step of the way. Just when it seems like things are going to get better, they get worse. Or he might have experienced cynicism. Where he felt like, you know, I'm not sure that I can just sit back, relax and enjoy God's blessing because I know that the moment I do, he's going to snatch that away from me just like he, he did with everything else. And yet God wasn't done with the situation and he wasn't done with Joseph. Pharaoh has a dream too. We're told that he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river and began grazing in the marshland. Then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile, but these were scrawny and thin. Then the scrawny thin cows ate the seven healthy fat cows, and at this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. <laughs> kind of a weird dream. Well, finally, as he goes to the, uh, you know, his soothsayers and his, his wise men, they, none of them can interpret the dream. And finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. He says, today I've been reminded of my failure. 
Remember that time you threw me in prison, Pharaoh? <clears throat> uh, there was actually a guy there, a dude who could actually interpret dreams. He actually predicted accurately that I would get out of this place and that I would be restored back to my original position. And so Pharaoh grabs Joseph out of prison and he quickly brought him from the prison and after he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Okay, this part's weird. He shaved. And it wasn't like he just shaved his face. He got what you might call an Egyptian. (laughs) That's where you shave everything, even your eyebrows. And... um, So he shaves down because, as we'll find out later on, hairy people were detestable to the Egyptians. And so it was appropriate for him to actually shave in order to come into Pharaoh's presence. Well, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had this dream last night and no one here can tell me what it means. But I've heard that uh, when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph replied, it's beyond my power to do this, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Notice that he gives God the credit immediately. He doesn't take credit for himself. He doesn't say, I got this one. Well, Pharaoh describes his dream to Joseph. And Joseph responds and interprets the dream. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows, they represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin ones represent seven years of famine. This famine is going to be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. And so Joseph gives them, Pharaoh and his advisors, this advice. He says, what you should do is, during the seven years of plenty, you should store up grain to stave off those seven years of famine. And they're all asking, well, who are we going to look to to administrate this great project? They're like, man, maybe we should find somebody who's charismatic, gifted, good-looking, somebody like that. And they were like, wow, what about you, Joseph? And so at that point, God catapults Joseph to second in command of the most powerful nation in the ancient world. I mean, that must have been like totally crazy, right? That's like sitting in the county jail for like, you know, for several years and then you know, the governor releasing you and then you becoming like the vice president of the United States all in one day. And that's exactly what happens here. Well, back in Canaan, Genesis 42, we're told, when Jacob heard that the grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you guys standing around looking at one another? (laughs) He's like, how is that going to help out our situation? Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we're going to die. But one condition, he refused to send Benjamin because of his other son. uh, It was the other son of Rachel. And he favored Benjamin, his, his loved son. Well, since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Remember that dream? Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? From the land of Canaan, they said. We've come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, probably because he was dressed like an Egyptian. You know, 
imagine again, you know, you got to put yourself into the narrative, especially if you're studying the Bible. You want to try to put yourself in the shoes of, of the characters. You know, can you imagine what Joseph must have been thinking as he's standing there in this position of power over his brothers? Last time he saw them 21 years ago, they had beaten him, they had humiliated him, they had thrown him into this cistern. That was his last memory of his brothers before he was in Egypt. And I'm sure he probably spent long nights in prison fantasizing about this moment right here. If I ever get a chance to see these guys again, I just can't wait. I mean, we've all sort of done that. Somebody that we're bitter towards, somebody that we resent. We think of all the different ways, the scenarios that we could get them back. Now he was in a position to do something about it. You know, he could easily have these guys in prison and executed without any question. And yet Joseph didn't see things from a purely horizontal point of view. You know, a lot of times when we face hardship, when we face conflict, when we face people wronging us, it's easy to feel like the problem is that I have this circumstance that's blocking me from what I want. Or that I have this person who's hurting me. And yet we fail to consider that God may actually be working in this situation. Not causing the suffering in our lives, but that he may use that suffering for good. Well, he remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. He said to them, you're spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my Lord, they exclaimed. Your servants have simply come to buy food. We're all brothers, members of the same family. We're honest men. We're not spies. Yes, you are, he insisted. You've come to see how vulnerable our land is. Sir, they said, there are actually 12 of us. We're your servants. All brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother's back there with our father right now, and one of our brothers is no longer with us. Boy, that must have just really hurt, you know. I mean, it would have probably been tempting for Joseph to say, so yeah, about that brother who's no longer with us. But Joseph insisted, as I said, you're spies. This is how I'm going to test your story. I'm going to swear, I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. How about that? You need to come back and bring back your brother to show that this is actually true. One of you must go get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. If it turns out that you don't have a younger brother, then I know you're spies. And so Joseph put them all in prison for three days. It's kind of confusing what Joseph's doing here. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I'm a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. If you're really honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. The rest of you may go home with your grain for your starving family. So he says, look, I'm not going to keep all of you, just one of you. And then you guys all go back and uh, bring back your brother to verify your story. He says, this will prove that you're, not, that you're telling the truth and you will not die. And to this they agreed. Speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we're all being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked? But you wouldn't listen. 
And now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. So he was listening. He understood Hebrew. So he was, he was in on their dialogue. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. He couldn't, he couldn't control himself at this point. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. He chose Simeon from among them and, and had him tied up right before their eyes. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain. So the brothers loaded their donkeys with the grain and headed home. But when they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get grain out for his donkey and he found money on top of the sack. Look, he exclaimed, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack. Then their hearts sank, trembling. They said to each other, what has God done to us? So they're in a bad situation. They don't want to return to Egypt, partly because they know that there is this money here that didn't belong. And also, they didn't want to have to go back to Canaan and request that Jacob hand over their brother Benjamin because they knew that he loved Benjamin and didn't want to lose him. So it would have been really convenient for them to make up a story just like they did with Joseph and say, you know, something happened to Simeon on the way. He got attacked by a, a wild animal. Sorry for your loss, Dad. It would have been a really convenient way to smooth over this whole situation. Well, the remaining brothers report everything to Jacob. Genesis 43, but the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had bought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah, the oldest, said, the man was serious when he warned us. You won't see my face again unless you, your brother is with you. If you send Benjamin with us, we'll go down and buy more food. Why were you so cruel to me? Jacob moaned. Why did you tell him that you had another brother? The man kept insisting and asking questions about our family, they replied. So we answered his questions. How could we know he would say, bring your brother down here? Good point. <laughs> Sounds like he had some inside information, right? Well, he says, then take your brother and go back to the man. May God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. So he resigned himself to God's fate. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them as they were approaching, he said to the manager of his household, these men will eat with me at noon. Go and slaughter an animal and go prepare a big feast. The brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken into Joseph's house. It's because of the money someone put in our sacks last time we were here, they said. He plans to pretend that we stole it. Then he'll seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. Like the second most powerful man in Egypt is going to want your donkeys, right? <laughs> That's like, you know, that's like the vice president trying to steal your Honda Civic. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> it's foolish. Well, when Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts that they had brought him. After greeting them, he asked, how is your father, the old man you spoke about? Is he still alive? Yes, they replied, our father, your servant, is alive and well. Then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother, the one that you told me about? May God be gracious to you, my son, Joseph said. Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. Be hard to control yourself in this situation. I'm sure it was uh, very emotional. After washing his face, he came back out 
Keeping himself under control this time, he ordered them, bring out the food. And the waiter served Joseph at his own table and his brothers were served at a separate table because the, Egypt the Egyptians who ate with Joseph sat at their own table because Egyptians despised Hebrews and refused to eat with them. Joseph told each of his brothers where they had to sit and to their amazement, he seated them according to age from the oldest to the youngest. They're all sitting there like, how did this happen? And Joseph filled their place with fruit, food from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. And so they feasted and drank freely with him. What an odd scene. You know, they're all sitting there puzzled why they were seated in order. And then here's Benjamin, the favored son, who got supersized. You know, he's got like five times as much food as everybody else. Genesis 44. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to the palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as it can carry and put each man's money back into the sack. But then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack. Well, Joseph sends out some of his lackeys to go and stop them and search them. And of course, you know, they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Well, <clears throat> Judah when they return to the palace, says, my Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. It's interesting that Judah steps up. He says, look, all of us, we're going to pay for this, even though Benjamin was the one who allegedly had stolen this. Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup would be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Now, to their knowledge, they probably didn't know that Benjamin was innocent. They may have thought that he was actually guilty of stealing this silver cup. So it would have been very convenient for them to say, take him, he's guilty. And gone back to Canaan with their grain and their money. Well, Judah says, my Lord, I guarantee to my father that I would take care of the boy. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. This actually becomes quite interesting because later we find out that one of the descendants of Judah, many years later, 1,400 years later, <laughs> um, actually uh, substituted for our sake, the man Jesus Christ. And uh, so really we have a picture here of what you might call substitutionary sacrifice. This really fits the pattern that God sees where when there's something that has been done that was wrong, there needs to be a sacrifice made. Well, in Genesis 45, Joseph couldn't stand it any longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers, when he told him who he was. You know, probably the way that they saw, the way that Joseph uh, saw his brothers treat Benjamin broke this whole thing open. It ended the charade because, you know, they had their opportunity to just get rid of Benjamin, Jacob's other favored son. And yet, something happened in those 22 years in their heart that changed them. They learned from their lesson. They had repented. They had a change of mind, a change of heart. 
Well, they all broke down. And Joseph, we're told, broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that even the Egyptians could hear him. And he said to them, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. He says, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says, come down immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all of your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and everything that you own. I'll take care of you there. But there are still five years of famine ahead of us. I mean, this, you know, just, this scene just is so powerful. This reconciliation, but also Joseph's perspective on the matter. He wasn't blaming them or his circumstances, but that he saw God working in the situation. Later in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, he says and reiterates to his brothers, he says, you intended to me to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. And so God can take even the worst kind of suffering, the worst kind of trial that you might experience, and he can use it for good to redeem not only your suffering, your experience of suffering, but also redeem many people's lives just like he did with Joseph. In the aftermath of all of this, you know, Pharaoh relocated Israel, Jacob, and all of his descendants to the most fertile land in Egypt, in Goshen. And God multiplied them from a family of just a few people into a, a large nation. And the Egyptians avoided them because they were herdsmen and they hated animals with fur or hair and they hated hairy people. <laughs> and so the Israelites were, were isolated there enjoying really one of the best parcels in all of Egypt. So, how do we ana uh, analyze this story? How, you know, what are we to conclude from all of this? I think, first of all, it wasn't that it was difficult to see the outcome of this story. It was impossible. You know, for those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, we know how this story goes, right? So, so when we begin the story, we know the outcome, and so we feel a sense of relief. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You know, every time he faced yet another trial, every time he faced more suffering, it threw him into more and more confusion. And it wasn't like he could, he could predict what was going to happen. There was no way for him to know what was going to happen. And yet he trusted God. The second thing is that God can redeem even the worst circumstances, betrayals, and suffering. This story demonstrates that. God can take the worst kind of suffering and he can redeem people's lives through it. Maybe the greatest example of this is in the man Jesus Christ. 
You know, as the disciples probably watched on as Jesus hung on the cross along with the women, they probably thought to themselves, how could God let this happen to his own son? How could the guy we thought was the chosen one die in this terrible way? And yet little did they know God was accomplishing the greatest act of mercy and forgiveness ever in all of history. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ suffered and died 2,000 years ago so that we can have a relationship with God in order to forgive us for the things that we've done wrong, to be a substitute on our behalf. And so if God can do something like that through Jesus Christ, and if he can do something like that through a guy like Joseph, he can certainly use your suffering, which by comparison is probably nothing like this, and use it for incredible good. And third, Joseph was able to maintain his integrity because he didn't just see things from a horizontal point of view. It turns out that God doesn't automatically use your suffering for good. It largely depends on your attitude and your willingness to endure suffering faithfully. And so, you know, in your, when you're in the midst of crisis, when you're in the midst of suffering, it's important for you to take a moment and step back and ask yourself the question, what is God doing in this situation? Instead of seeing all of these things as circumstances that are blocking me or causing suffering, we need to ask ourselves, is God allowing this to come into my life because he wants to accomplish something greater that I can't see? And it's that hope that we have to cling on to if we want to be able to endure this suffering with our faith intact and for God to use that in a way that he used, in the same way that he used Joseph's suffering. All right. Next week, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Pretty awesome story. All right. Yeah, again, Lord, thanks for stories like this that um, you show us how you can redeem uh, incredible suffering. And, you know, some of us are just facing suffering right now that seems unbearable, um, suffering that just uh, seems uh, meaningless, senseless. And uh, yet you're a God who can take senseless suffering and turn it into good. You can use it for your purposes. And um, I thank you that we don't have to suffer in vain, but that if we hold on to our hope in you, our trust in you, that you're a good God and that you have a purpose behind what we're going through, that you can actually use this powerfully in our lives and in the lives of many other people. And uh, I pray for those of us uh, suffering that you would encourage us and bolster us through this story. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.